Our reading this evening is from the first letter of Peter, chapter 1, reading from verse 1 through to verse 12. Letter from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be relieved in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of, G- of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving, not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Well, tonight, on Easter Sunday night, we turn to the first chapter of 1 Peter. Some of you will know here it is a much-loved passage of mine, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Uh, I get to speak on it about once every two years, which means that some of you would have heard it four and a half times. Um, Some of you, most of you not though. It is a wonderful passage that really describes, I think more powerfully than any other New Testament passage that begins a letter, what it means to be a Christian and on resurrection evening, what it means to be someone who has benefited from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd have noticed when Vivian read the reading that halfway through the 
language changes from this glorious eternal future that is guaranteed in which we greatly rejoice to the reality of this world. This world where we are grieved by trials of various kinds. Now, sometimes these are severe and as dark as they can be. So yesterday, Joe McNeely, one of our elders, and I read these words and prayed these words to someone with someone as they died or just before they died. And were they appropriate words to read to someone we hoped and believed and prayed had a clear faith in Jesus? Yes. That's an extreme circumstance. But I want you tonight, if I can be so bold as to ask you to do this, to think yourself on the day when you will lie out and you will die and I will die and someone reading these words of consolation to you and the comfort they will bring you if they are true for you. Some of you here tonight are very new Christians and you're learning all of the time. And I hope that tonight you will learn some more of the wonderful things that God gives us through his death and resurrection. So inside the service sheet, you'll see some uh, headings. Uh, They have changed, I think, from the last time I preached it. So there you go. It gets better or worse all the time. I'm not sure which. Let me just touch on verses 1 and 2 and touch on verses 10 and 12 and uh, spend most of our time on 3 through 9. Just to touch on 1 and 2, the heading I've given there is remember who you are and whose you are. You know, we could spend ages on these two verses. They're wonderful. If you're a Christian sitting here tonight, which means if you are someone who has trusted, who has laid hold of Jesus Christ, his person for your salvation, believing that his death has forgiven your sins, his resurrection gives you new birth, new life, hope of glory. If that's you, if you do that and know that sincerely in your heart, then Peter begins by saying, remember who you are, and then whose you are. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, this is who you are, elect exiles of the dispersion to Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what he is doing, he's writing to churches all over Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And they're marginalized. It's just not where it's at anymore then as it was now. And he's writing to all these scattered churches, And to Christians in these churches saying, remember who you are. And if Peter were to say to them, what does it feel like you are? They would have said, exiles. We're all alone. It's hardly any of us. Maybe you feel an exile in your family. Because there aren't any other Christians. Maybe you feel an exile with your mates, your study, your school. There are no other Christians. And the churches feel that exile status because there are so few of us. I mean, we delivered 20,000 million cards to Morningside. And half a dozen people came and we rejoice in that. 
And there were some wonderful conversations, some wonderful contact, some people signing up to Christianity Explored. But 20,000 million less six means an awful lot of people don't want to know. That's reality. That's what it's like to live as an exile in a city like this. But Peter writes to them, remember you are an elect exile. Elect means chosen by God. You're one of God's children. You, you have all the blessings of salvation. So remember as you feel marginal in your family, in your community, where you work, at school, wherever it is, that God's hand is upon you. You are his child. That's who you are. And then that slides in Peter's mind and in his own heart as he writes, remember, because of who you are, whose you are. If you're a Christian, whose are you? Verse 2, you are who you are because of the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of God the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, there's three whole sermons on the foreknowledge of God the Father, on the sanctification of God the Spirit, and the, the obedience that comes through turning to Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. Whose are you? You are the object of the choice and love and mercy of God the Father. You have the indwelling Spirit of Christ within you, making you like him, the sanctification of the Spirit, and you have been sprinkled clean as white as snow. By the blood of Jesus Christ. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for you and in you. So remember who you are and whose you are. And therefore, may, as Peter writes, grace and mercy and peace be multiplied to you. That word in the Greek is like a, an overflowing bathtub. It's grace that keeps coming and keeps coming and peace that keeps coming. And maybe tonight as you sit here, because you feel like an exile, you need to remember who you are and whose you are. And you are a child of grace and peace. Right, let's get into verses 3 to 9, the heart of this. First, verses 3 to 5, your promised inheritance. Now, this is fantastic stuff. I hope it warms your heart. If you are a Christian and it doesn't warm your heart, you've either got a very cold heart or I'm a hopeless, rubbish preacher. But even if I'm a hopeless, rubbish preacher, all you need to do is ignore me and read it a few times and it should warm your heart. It warms Peter's heart. You can, when Peter writes, you can sense that, can't you? When, when Peter writes about who you are and whose you are, Peter remembers who he is and whose he is. Grace and peace flood into peace. Now here is grace and peace, your promised inheritance, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be, let's read it, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I've read that quickly because it's one sentence in the Greek. 
And, and often when Peter or Paul write with one big long sentence, there's a kind of overflow or a spontaneous bubbling up of rich, wonderful theology coming out of their hearts. Now let me just unpack that step by step, which is better perhaps for our logical minds. Notice first the phrase, according to his great mercy. Those of you here tonight, some of you are very new Christians, You are a Christian because of God's great mercy. Everything concerning our salvation and all that flows from it is because of the grace of God. According to his great mercy, notice what the text says, he has caused us. It's not even he has given us. He has caused us. He's caused us. He's moved us to this. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, what? To be born again. If I was preaching in Africa, I'd be saying to you at this point, brothers, sisters, are you born again? Some of you have lived in Africa for many years. I've just seen one. I'm just frightened that you might shout out now. And you call out in response, yes, brother, we're born again. And I would say, Amen, brother, sister, we're born again. But we're not in Africa, are we? We're in Scotland. So we're all looking at our feet. If you're a Christian, you're born again. There's a story told of a lady who came up to George Whitfield, the great evangelist, at the end of one of his meetings. Mr. Whitfield, she said, why do you preach so much on you must be born again? Because, madam, replied Whitfield, you must be born again. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, born again Christian has a a kind of ring to it that is kind of dodgy. But if you're not born again, you're not a Christian. Born again means Christian. Christian means born again. It means that you have been born again. Not physically, but spiritually. You're a new person. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, let's take it a stage further. What does new birth mean? Peter writes that we are born again to a living hope. And if you are born again to a new life, it's got to be a living thing that you're born again to. It is living. What is a living hope? Well, being born again, becoming a Christian brings us into a whole new realm of experience. The Christian life is an experiential life. It is resurrection life. It is the life where our conscience comes alive. It is a life where sin hits you between the eyes. It is a life where the peace of God grabs your mind and grabs your heart and is real. It's an experiential life being born again to something that is living. And it's an experiential life because Christ is within you by his spirit. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what Peter is doing there is he's saying that the fact that we are born again to a living hope is only true because Jesus Christ 
was raised to life from death. So think back to that first Easter that we celebrate today. Had Jesus not died in his cross, you could not be sitting here with your sins forgiven. Had Jesus not been raised from the dead, you could not be born again to new life. Because his resurrection life is what is in you by the Spirit of Christ. So you are alive in Jesus Christ. Now it's very hard to explain all this. I can't give you a perfect illustration. And I'm trying to come round at it in different ways so you can get it. And it's marvelous what Peter is saying. He says, you've been born again, made new through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And his resurrected person has come into your life by the Holy Spirit. And all that he has achieved through his death is in you. It's marvelous. And what is it that you have been born again into? A living hope. Now, were you sitting here and I was to say to you, you've been born again into something that is living and Christ is in you. And that's great. And we'll get to that at the back end of this when Peter says, even though you haven't seen Jesus, you love him. But before he gets to that, he wants to say to us that what you are sitting here thinking and feeling in your mind and heart tonight as a Christian is nothing to what you will have one day. So immediately he he talks about being gone again into a living and he stops us thinking something that we have now and he has living hope and hope is future. What is that living hope? It is being born again into a glorious future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven uh, for you. Now, when you see somebody dying, and you read these words, it becomes so very clear to you when you watch, and to them as they lie there, that any any of the very best senses and feelings you might have in this life as a Christian is nothing to what you are released to in that future. Hope and inheritance. What is the glorious future inheritance? It is the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth where Christian believers will reign with Christ for eternity. And maybe you're new as a Christian and you think, what's the future? The future is a new creation. This world that we live in and walk on resurrected itself. No decay, no decline, no danger, no brokenness, no fallenness. This world resurrected and you and I as Christians will be raised bodily and we will walk in the new creation. It's like Eden restored. What will it be like? Marvelous. But that's about all we know. Except there will be no hospitals. There will be no tears. There will be no sin. There will be no slander. There will be no threat of nuclear war. The new creation. Yeah. Now if this was a kind of talk I was giving to try and persuade you with some slick rhetoric of something. It's when that kind of thing happens, it's all over. But it's not about that, is it? Helps us focus our minds. This glorious inheritance to come. It is nothing like this earth. It's nothing like it. And Joe and I have been privileged this Easter to spend Easter with a dying 
person to remember that it's nothing, nothing like this. And God willing for her, she is there. Now, what is it we learn about this inheritance? It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's Peter giving you a three-point sermon just in his phrase. It is imperishable means it's not able to be destroyed. It's indestructible. What in this world is indestructible? Nothing. It's indestructible. The new creation is indestructible. It is undefiled, which means it's not polluted. It means a world without locks and alarms, jails or police, a world without doctors, disease, hospitals, a world without temptation and sin, regret, hurt, pain, tears, grief, guilt. And it will never be defiled. And unfading means not subject to decay. Now, I am rapidly approaching middle age. Um, I think I probably used that phrase when I first preached on this eight years ago, which means that I am now rapidly past middle age. And I'm beginning to grasp that the human body fades. Yesterday, I managed about a 20-mile cycle. And if I'm looking tired today, the reason is that I was so sore last night that I couldn't sleep. And we fade... You know, I was trying to run on a treadmill on the holidays and it was pathetic compared to what I used to do. And it's just downhill from now on. And one day, we will die. And our breath will go. But the new creation does not decay or fade or grow tired or grow weary. Now that is the inheritance that awaits us. Too good to be true? Is it really guaranteed? Is it an inheritance that is guaranteed? Peter writes, yes, that it is kept in heaven for you. It is is guaranteed. And, And there are all sorts of ways the New Testament convinces us the new inheritance is guaranteed. The most powerful of which, in Paul's writing, is the resurrection of Jesus. If you, if you doubt Christian faith, then come to Christianity Explored and look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It all pivots to that. It is kept in heaven for you, this inheritance. And then wonderfully, Peter just puts in this little phrase. It is kept in heaven for you. For you. Isn't that a wonderful thought? It's kept secure for me, for you. But there's an even more wonderful thought that follows because... I'm standing here thinking, perhaps, or you are sitting there thinking, okay, God, there's a house in the new creation with my name in the door, but am I going to get there? Quite often, I'll doubt if I even get through a week as a Christian, let alone get to the new creation. I mean, some of you are awfully young here. You're nowhere near middle age. 60, 70 years ahead of you, do you think you're going to get there in one piece to that new creation? Peter writes, It is kept in heaven for you. The new creation is kept, undefiled, unfading, and 
You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Those of you who have just stepped out on the Christian life with 60 years ahead of you, it is kept for you and you will be kept for it. That's what Paul is saying. Around you is a garrisoning power of God guarding you, getting you through life to the new creation. And those of you here who are older saints can look back maybe on 60 years. And you can testify that what Peter is saying is true. God's power has shielded you through life and will get you home. And the final thing that Peter teaches us about this glorious future inheritance is when we will receive it. We will receive it when the Lord Jesus comes again. That's what he means, verse 5, when he says a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. When Jesus comes again, He will not come in a stable and a manger as a humble servant king. He will not hang on a cross in ignominy and shame. He will come in all the majesty and splendor and glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that day, the earth will be resurrected and all that have died in Christ will be raised from the dead bodily to join their souls with Jesus Christ. That's the day when it will happen and the new creation will dawn. Now, you might be sitting here, and I have these doubts as well. Um, I have lots of doubts. It's 2,000 years. It's a long time, isn't it? Is he really going to come again? Well, go 2,000 years before Christ first came. Is he ever going to come? Is the Messiah ever going to come? But he came. When Jesus died, even though he said he'd rise again, did the disciples ever believe that he would rise again? Nobody rose again. Why won't Jesus come? Because there are still more people in his mercy and in his grace he wants to bring in to his kingdom. So if God had come a month ago in the person of Jesus, there's somebody sitting here tonight that wouldn't be in glory. God is gracious. He's kind. He waits. But he will come again. He will come again. Now, that's marvelous stuff in these verses. By God's grace, you have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept in heaven for you, and you are kept for it. That's it, wonderful. And at that point, we stop and we begin to sing all sorts of marvelous songs, which is right. But on any Sunday, in any church, in any part of this world, there are people listening to preaching whose lives are anything but marvelous, who have loved ones who are suffering, who know Christians in parts of the world where there is intense opposition against them. And so, verses 6 to 9 give a wonderful, wonderful realism to real life. And one of the most persuasive things, and if you've become a Christian or are soon to become a Christian, one of the most persuasive things about the Bible is how real it is. It's real. Look at verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice... What do you rejoice in? Do you rejoice in verses 6 to 9, the trials, 
Do you rejoice in that? That's daft. Of course you don't. In this you greatly rejoice. What do you greatly rejoice in? That by God's grace you have been born again to a living hope through his resurrection. You have a wonderful inheritance. It will not change and you will get there. That's what you rejoice in. You have that heavenly perspective. You know, in our culture, some of the phrases that are most often used are the most emphatically wrong. You know, that this person is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. That's just plain wrong. The more heavenly minded, the more evangelistic zeal you will have. The more heavenly minded you are, the more you will be able to rejoice in glory and then live through this world in all of its pain, which is verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, when Paul, or Peter says, rather, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Uh, The bad news, you've all looked up at that point. The bad news is that the phrase for a little while doesn't mean a few weeks or a few months. It means from the day you were born until the day you will die. And the little while here is this life. Because to a greater or lesser extent, this life from the day you are born until the day you die is a life whereby we are grieved by all sorts of trials. Now, there are pockets in our life where they are more or less intense. I think in church life, about every five or six weeks, there's a little break in the clouds and the sun shines down. But then the clouds come again. And in people's lives, it's just the same. From the day you were born until the day you die on this earth, you will be grieved by various trials. Now, that is true in a general sense in life as we live in a fallen world, as we suffer from illness and sickness and all these issues. But Peter's particular focus here is the stuff that you experience because you are a Christian. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Genuine Christian experience is always cross-shaped and remains throughout this life. Which is why Peter says at the beginning, he's writing to people who are who? Elect exiles. It is hard. What are the various trials he refers to? All kinds of trials. Well... The best way, I think, to work out what Peter is saying is to work out how that word is used in the New Testament. That's always a a good way to go. Uh, That word trials, how is it used in the New Testament? It's used, for example, in Hebrews to talk about just the isolation of living as a Christian in a godless world. It's spoken about in terms of the opposition we encounter through evangelism. As we share our faith. 
I mean, just think of all these invitation cards that we handed out. It's, it's actually, it's quite easy to put them through the door because you don't get the opposition, but it's just very tangible, the opposition. No one is here. I mean, some are coming, which is wonderful, but most don't come. The opposition when we share our faith. You know, it's wonderful for me to hear today of half a dozen people who have spoken to people about the gospel this week. Just grasped opportunities. Do you know how encouraging that is? But the kickback and the opposition is real. The opposition we encounter through evangelism. And in the churches that Peter was writing to, well, they're a little bit like the churches that are meeting in Aleppo in Syria. That are meeting tonight, perhaps, rejoicing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, in a wholly different way to us. I think the word is also used in the New Testament, the trials. The word is used for temptations of the devil. Later on in his letter, Peter said, the enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, the trials you face as a Christian. How many times have you been buoyed up on a Sunday as a Christian, encouraged that this week you will do battle with that sin, and then by Monday night, boom, you're back to Jesus again. Battle, battle, battle all the way through your life. You know, I think we have no idea what it will be like when we are in the new creation to be free of temptation. Be wonderful. Free of sin. That's what Peter means by these trials. But I think it's not inappropriate to embrace all the stuff and battles of life as well. We're nearly there. When we go through these trials for our faith, what should we, what, what should we sing? Should we sing, shine Jesus shine? I like shine Jesus shine. It's a great song. Yes, we should. Verses three, four, five. In this you greatly rejoice. But we should also sing laments. What does Peter say? We suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It's not failing to be a Christian, to cry. It's not failing to be a Christian, to mourn. And of course, when we face opposition and cost for our faith, it is not pointless, but for a purpose. Is there purpose to our suffering? Is suffering for our faith something we just need to accept and endure? Or is there a purpose in it? Is there a point in it? Is it just that to the Christians in the world, their lot is to suffer? And we kind of embrace that as a stoical, well, let's just tough it out till the new creation. Is there a purpose in it? Is there a point in it? Is there a point on living on the line as a Christian? Is it worth it? I met a Christian in London a couple of weeks ago who's really senior in the world of finance and politics. And he's a a wonderful Christian man. He just looked exhausted with all the battles that go on as a Christian for him in public life. Is it worth it? Number one, when the cost comes because of our Christian commitment, it does firstly this. It purifies our faith. 
The imagery here is helpful. Gold is purified in the refiner's fire. The dross, anything that is not genuine is burned up. And likewise, our faith is purified in the refining fire of suffering. Here's a verse from a great old hymn. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. What that's saying, it's hard to accept that sometimes when you're in the middle of a difficult circumstance, opposition to your faith. Let me illustrate it like this. When you seek to share the gospel and the door is slammed on your face, you you turn to Jesus in adversity, you run to him, you come closer to him, and you are transformed by his spirit. Your faith is refined. Second, these trials test and prove the genuineness of our faith so that the tested genuineness of our faith. Those of you here who are older saints in the Christian life can look back to many, many times in your life where you have gone through some difficult circumstance because of your faith. And at the end of it, what God has done to you is prove that the faith that you have is not Anything that any human could have given you, it would not have stood the test. It's proved genuine. You've come through it. The soul that in Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, 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 never forsake. And then thirdly, rejoicing in suffering and enduring produces spiritual fruit. Suffering for our faith produces everlasting spiritual fruit. We've seen how it produces spiritual fruit in our own lives as our faith is purified, it's genuine, it's proved. But our forbearance and suffering impacts the lives of those around us. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think of it like this. What is the one event in history that will yield more fruit for the glory of God than any other? The death and resurrection of Jesus. The suffering of the Son of God yields abundant fruit. It's what turns people when Christ crucified is preached. Men and women give their life to Christ. And when Christian men and women endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, and God's grace enables them to endure, then men and women across the world are turned to Christ. Fruitfulness. Now in the journey towards that glorious future hope, we rejoice in that future hope. You see how the thing finishes? Let me just bracket it now. The first little section, you've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's kept for you. It will not change. You are kept for it. You will get there one day. In that you greatly rejoice. But that's all in the future. So it is. I'm not going to lie to you that this world will ever get anywhere near that. 
Anywhere near it. Verses 6, 7. Is now is this real world. So is it just hold on and grin and bear it? Well, Peter gives us verses 8 and 9. Though you have not yet seen Jesus. But I've not seen him. You love him. I've had the privilege of being with a new Christian today. And what they have communicated with me more powerfully than anything else is that they love Jesus Christ. That's it. That's a great test of genuineness. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what Peter is saying as we finish, he's he's grasping all the stuff at the top end, verses 3 to 5. That's in the future. It's future hope. Verses 6 and 7 is present reality. But as you sit here tonight, verses 8 and 9 are also present reality. Because that future is guaranteed. It is kept for you and you are kept for it. And if you know Jesus, you have nothing, nothing to be afraid of. Now, maybe tonight there are people here who don't know the Lord Jesus. Let me encourage you, if that is you, to come along to a Christianity Explored course and find out for yourself who Jesus is. I've spoken a lot tonight about the person who's recently become a Christian. I've never looked at them in case you know who they are. You'll hear soon enough. One of the striking things about their testimony was that until somebody engaged them with the gospel and they'd become a wonderful converted Christian, they had never even thought about it. Never thought about it. Because no one has spoken to them. Imagine if no one has spoken to you. It's great to be a Christian. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these wonderful, wonderful words in 1 Peter. At the end of a resurrection day, We pray that you would burn them into our hearts and minds for your glory, for the honor of the name of your Son. May we rejoice in all the privileges of salvation, be realistic about the sufferings of the present, and be able to say, even though we have not seen Jesus, we love him very, very, very much. Jesus, we want to say that we do love you, And that the hope of glory is real in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.